How would you rate your Skype experience? <laughs> <laughs> Alligatory. Yeah, I magical. I'd... Do you guys ever rate an app if, if they ask you to? Um, sometimes I'll give it a star rating if I really like it. But if I don't like it and I have complaints, I'm it, if I use the app a lot, I'll just write the developer. I would not write to the developer of Skype though; that no one's going to respond to that. Wow. You think the one guy who does Skype is too busy <laughs> to yeah. discuss? Uh, well, the bug is a feature, right? Bugs yeah. a feature. Yep. That's what they say. Yeah, and I would not be surprised if Microsoft only has one person working on this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, I'm, I'm ahead. I'm head of Skype now. Every time I got I in use, trouble, every time I use it, it says it's updating. I'm like, no, don't. I just got used yeah, to the last bad thing. Larry, you're the head of Skype now. Uh, that means you have to let the plumber in at six. <laughs> Get here early to warm things up, turn on the wall heaters, and uh, pull the blinds. <laughs> Put on some water for tea. <laughs> That's what it means to be in charge of Skype. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. So um, beat the goats. Are you guys going to be seeing each other in Tampa? I should. I told Ed this, but I'm not going to. I'm actually not going to AWP this year for the first time in a while. Yes, I am going, but I'm only going for Friday and Saturday. I don't know why. I decided to limit my AWP experience this time, but now I'm regretting it, of course. But yeah, since you have a since you now have a book out, yeah. you should try to limit your availability and Well, presence. I know, but I'm not doing any readings or anything. I didn't set up any schmoozing opportunities, so I was like, well, whatever. And also I live close this year. So, yeah, overall I don't know. I actually, on your behalf, I mean, you already did it yourself, I'm sure, but I was curious enough. I was curious if you were close enough to Tampa to drive, but it looks like it's 12 hours. Yeah, but the flight is like 40 minutes long or something. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it'll it'll be good. But I didn't. I well, and the other thing is that I have department funds for travel now, oh, nice. which I've never had before. And uh, so then, of course, I'm like, "Oops, didn't sign up for AWP." Like the <laughs> only thing that I would possibly do. So, um, whatever. But I'll be there. Yeah, I blew my uh, I blew all my my uh, Cornell funds on um, on my book tour, which I do not regret. It was worth it. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait till next year to go back to AWP. I yeah. still think of you as someone who doesn't go to AWP, John. Yeah, and I think of you that way too. But the thing is, mm-hmm. and I think if someone were to look back at our podcast history, pretty much every year you say, there's no way you're going to go, and then you go. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going. Well, but I, I decided to go a while ago. I'm on a panel that's a memorial panel for uh, in which we'll be discussing the legacy of our friend Derek Burleson. Yeah. And I was too cheap to fly to Alaska for his funeral. So uh, this is, uh, which was, you, you know, Alaska's colder, Tampa's warmer. It's warm. Yeah. So, Alice, did you ever, did you ever meet Derek? No, I don't know who that is. He was a UM grad. Although I knew him, and um, he was doing an MA at Kansas State when I was an undergrad, and was I'm largely an invention of Derek Burleson. Oh, <laughs> I see. 
I like the teapot um, in the Beauty and the Beast, and he's either he's a combination and he's of the, the beast? Beauty and the Beast. He's a oh. little, he's a he's a handsome guy too. I mean, I so guess is the Beast. I guess the Beast is the Beast and the teapot are both inventions of a witch. I don't know what the the curse is. And you're yeah. the witch. And he you're, is the you're witch. The, you're the witch who lifts. And I'm fifty percent oh, yeah. witch. The witch who lifts. The oh, bodybuilding, yeah. a bodybuilding wizard story. Yes. Alice has a, Alice has a shirt. Witches who lift. Yeah, I actually. So, oh, I, right. Alice, I was working on a. Uh, I was working on a blurb for your book when you, <laughs> when you Instagrammed a post of you at the gym wearing your witches who lift. <laughs> And yep. I've, I had to, I actually had a draft of the blurb that called you a witch who lifts. I was trying to like, <laughs> I was trying to like cast that as a as a literary statement, but I decided it was just too obscure. That uh, when I was I gave a reading for the River City Writers series here in Memphis, and in January, and my the my colleague who runs it gave me an introduction where she basically talked about how I lift weights and how I'm funny on Twitter. And I was like, could you not? (laughs) 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 We keep some things private. (laughs) Oh, the the woman saying this is the one who, who screenshotted one of my text messages and put it on the internet yesterday. Well, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, well, I'm not just that's not a pro, in the a professional context. <laughs> so actually, but Ed, sure it's a violation. No, I, I agree. It was an amusing violation, though. Ed, I want to ask your opinion on this. Um, so I, I just read, I'm sh- as I'm sure you did, uh, the the galleys of um, Alice's new book, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in the next hour or so. But it's it's really good. It's and, incredible, um, and uh, the whole house concurs. Jill really, really oh, likes did it Jill well. read it too? Jill loves it. Yeah, we both. Yeah, love it. awesome. But um, uh, I noticed something that not definitely not a mistake, but something that like I would have done a little differently if I were the editor. And I thought, I wonder if I should mention this to Alice because my feeling about this is when someone notices a thing in a galley, I actually do want to know. It's often too late to do anything about it. Um, Technically, that's what a galley's. One of the things the galley is for. Yeah. Now that there's been this, there's the ARC, and then there's the the page proofs, and I think things have changed over the years as, as to what what can be affected by what at what time. So anyway, I thought, well, I'll probably freak Alice out if I say this, but on the other hand, it's what I probably would want. So I so I texted her and said, so do you, <laughs> you want to know about you want a little copy editing tip, or should I? Or is it too late? <laughs> it turns out it was too late. But I hope it didn't bother you too much. And it's well, not its not the kind of thing um, I would worry about, actually. Honestly, my mom... Well, my mom is a librarian, but she's also has worked as an editor for years and years of mostly, like, library, academic journals. She runs her own op- open-source uh, librarianship journal, but oh, also wow. has edited lots of other stuff. And she's, like, extremely brilliant and detail-oriented editor and so she's always giving me little tips she, she and you actually have a, a an affinity john but <laughs> i'm the, aware of that <laughs> but um 
But also, I feel like from years of writing on the internet, where you have very little control ultimately of what your shit looks like, and even if you and yeah. even if you write them like, "Hey, that space bake was wrong," they're like, "Oh, cool, okay, I'll fix it," and then they never do. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so actually, I I have I maybe this is because I've never had a book before too, where I feel like at this point I'm maybe being naive, but right now I kind of feel a bit laissez-faire about the fact that there will be errors yeah, in good. the final version. It's not that I, of course I, I did my due diligence and was thorough in looking through all my proofs and making sure everything was as close as possible, but I also feel a little bit like, well, you know, <laughs> shit happens. <laughs> Well, as I alluded to um, on Twitter in response to that tweet of yours, uh, it's once you have a a couple of decades of career under your belt, you're gonna have people coming to your readings who are great because they have read a lot of your stuff, but are also like hopeless pedants, and like there's always a guy in the signing line who has a pile of your books with it's like furred with post-it notes. And he's, oh, he's like, no, I have a few suggestions for fu- future editions <laughs> of your work. And then, you know, they'll find – people find just mistakes, just like copying mistakes, like repeating repeating an unusual word twice in five pages, like that kind of thing, which is inevitable. But I feel like sort of like library book marginalia, which in theory I hate because it distracts me, but I also love because it it's human. You know what I mean? Right. Like the mistakes that – get left in, give this little glimpse into the creative process that I think is actually, I kind of almost wouldn't want them to go away. Well, I think about that when I'm reading a book, like the stuff that we sort of like torture ourselves over, like repeating a word or like sentence structure things where it's <laughs> like, oh, I, I, I started that sentence with but two paragraphs ago. I can't do that. And then when I'm reading a book by like a great author and I see that those things exist in their work, then I'm like, oh, okay. Like, yeah. And it doesn't bother me as a reader. So it actually, I like it. I like those not excesses of sloppiness, but those little ticks that all writers have or little, you know, yeah, yeah, bugaboos, sure. little quirks. Ed, do you, do you, um, yeah. Do you have regrets about your about your published work? Do I have regrets <laughs> about my published work? <laughs> I guess I have my answer. I'm just going to let that question answer itself. I lo- I felt like you were answering like a spelling bee. <laughs> could you could you use published work in a sentence, please? Do I have regrets? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Um, I um, the, the the copy editing process in my books has been so freaking fantastic that I, I any real uh, howlers have been discovered by others before. Yeah. Uh, before I, uh, I will con- I'll concur with that, and I hope that I hope Alice this the first book. I feel like you want you just. I want people whose writing I like when their first book comes out to have sort of the the perfect idealized first book experience. For me, copy editing has always been fantastic. And even when I disagreed aggressively with copy editors, they sort of they sort of gave me a yardstick to measure myself against to think, okay, I think you're wrong about that edit, but what why do I why did I do that in the first place? Why was that yeah. important to me? And why yeah. am I reacting so violently to it? 
And um, why do I do it on page 34, 172, and 311? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's even a thing I think – well, this is something I tell students too, but about working with editors, with any editor, but with a copy editor. Of course, copy editors are the most annoying kinds of editors because they pick apart the things that you say and they take things really literally and they point things out to you that are – insecurities (laughs) and they're not they're not evaluating in any sense that's the the, most other editorial things are some sort of evaluation going on where you can feel like you're passing or not passing it's merely the facts yeah it's it's an inquest but i feel (laughs) like there is it's something i've actually talked about with the writer amanda fortini too who's you know, worked with a million editors, but where she talks about doing, taking the third way. So your editor gives you one suggestion, you have Mm -hmm. the original suggestion and you give, give another, you know, suggestion. So you don't set the change, you know, and I feel like usually doing that is an impulse that should be avoided. You should come (laughs) up with another you know, it's like a negotiation, come up with another option. And in copy editing, that's some of what I did too, where even if the editor said something that I'm like, yeah, I know, uh, I still changed it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's actually, it's not just correcting your mistakes. It's an opportunity for you to think things through one more time in the most pedantic possible way. And I think that's useful for every writer. And and every mark is, is indicate somewhere where an attentive reader was interrupted by by doubt. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always felt that way with editors that even editors who I didn't enjoy working with or who I felt that they didn't fully understand or appreciate my work. Um, <laughs> I, my work. <laughs> my oeuvre. Um, I still... Their, edit, their comments were still useful, and they still ultimately made the piece better because if you're working with someone who you have to convince or who isn't doesn't have your same exact you know taste or point of view, then of course you know it's productive to hear their comments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's been one of the biggest things as I've grown as a nonfiction writer that I've had to learn. Yeah, I feel like that's my career project is is gently introducing students to that kind of horrifying concept. Just just how much give and take there ends up being in a in a successful published work of of prose in my case. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, Ed, I, we got distracted before I, I wanted to hear the uh, we had started talking about AWP and you mentioned the the thing for uh, for Derek. Do you want to? Oh, yeah. Do you want to sell it a little bit? What is it? Are you going to read? poems from his books or have a panel what's the what's the uh, there's a panel there's there's two graduates from the, the university of houston program who passed away last year who were about the same vintage which was too young mm-hmm. and mm. um and so there'll be a few talking about Derek and a few talking about the other the other uh deceased writer and uh we're gonna read one poem but mostly i you know typed up a little essay of appreciation um of him, without right. trying to be too too maudlin or, or sentimental, um, I'm going to try to you know, make some claims as to why he should continue to be read, um, and, and why his friends should continue to to promote him. Uh, so that maybe uh, you know, let me read 
read his, so he had four books, and uh, uh, I'd read them all, but I hadn't really read them in concert with each other. I hadn't looked at them since he died, because, uh, well, yeah, unpleasant. Um, but it is true that that you you live in your words. And when I was reading the poems, he was I was not reading the poems of a dead uh, person. I was enjoying the company of a friend uh, uh, who was a good poet. Uh, and I think he's just a good stylist over, over the course of his books, you know, 20 years or so, you can see, you can see sort of where he was going and how interesting that would have been, but also what he did achieve um, in a variety of, of ways. Um, you know, he lived in Rwanda for a while and he lived in Alaska, uh, you know, got out of Rwanda right before the genocide and, you know, right, wrote a lot about, about that experience and, and, <clears throat> circumstances surrounding it and then moving to Alaska which was just because there was a job there mm-hmm. but then you know for living for um, you know 20 years 30 miles outside of Fairbanks in an era of accelerating you know climate change changing you know in front of his eyes uh, and, you know finding finding ways to write about that the um, I had a conversation I don't know I haven't talked to you for a while with uh, yeah. A smart person lately, who was very uh, uh, skeptical of writers who are talking about climate change, um, who feels that if you uh, you know look at the if you look at the what's going on actually there, um, it's not it's not so simple as promoting you know activism and policy change, although that's very important. Um, says that what what writers, especially poets. Perhaps ought to be doing is teaching us how to mourn um, <laughs> and live with what's what's going to be lost, what's being lost right now, and what's going to be lost, and because that's going to happen no matter what, and that is, uh, you know, at the how, uh, <clears throat> writers should be able to write that. That's a big task for the writer, for anybody, and my an friend, important uh, one. And Derek was engaged in that. You remember my friend uh, Beth Rogers, um, the mm-hmm. poet. She's got a she's got a book coming out that. Um, it's. I feel like it's part. It's part of maybe a new. What's going to be a new wave of, or already is a new wave of poets writing about nature in a in a new and different way. The um. It's a. It's a, lots of poems about the environment, but she sort of transplanted these notions to to Mars. It's a lot of poems about Mars colonization nice. that are actually about uh, actually about climate change. I've um, got one of those too. And its effects. So I think that's coming out next year. Yeah. Well, um, I was just reading like. Joy Williams, her essays. You guys know this book, Ill Nature, and then also sure. she she wrote this, you know, extremely bleak and weird guidebook to the Florida Keys. Yeah. That, yeah. I haven't read that. Uh, that is also fa- fabulous, but yeah. she, I think, is the writer more than anyone else I've read. I mean, she is pessimistic, but she's also her point is that environmental degradation is permanent it's not mm-hmm. about talking about you know renewal or you know conservation it's about talking about what we've actually done to the everglades how they've been destroyed and how they're never coming back and it's actually a really brave project i think especially because it pisses so many people off to say no you know the everglades are they don't exist anymore they're gone and we should talk about that. Yeah. 
And they'll probably be she's so good. They'll probably be submerged before too long. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, well, hopefully, my, hopefully not before next week. I yeah, look forward I'm, to being know, in Florida. Holding out. I have a piece that's coming out soon in the Triangle House Review, a new journal that is about Florida, about going to Florida, and about kind of the dread of the dread that it holds. <laughs> dread. Are you feeling that dread now? Strong. It's a strong and specific dread. No, well, the thing is, when I went there, I was like, I am so happy right now. I love Florida so much. And then I was like, why do I love Florida? I immediately was suspicious of Florida sold itself to me so uh, ably. So then I, I read Joy Williams and Alyssa Nutting and, you know. Oh, God. <laughs> Tampa. I was wondering if we were going to talk about Yeah, Tampa. we got to. Well, I. I uh... you read it? Tampa by Alyssa Nutting. I have not read that. Oh, it's oh, crazy! It's one Ed. of the, most, the best and most upsetting <laughs> books that you could possibly read. It's so joyfully obscene. It's about a um, a high school teacher, a woman, uh, who is obsessed with having sex with her students. She's a pedophile, and She's she pedophile. seduces and rapes this young boy. And you and you're in her head. It's like this. Uh, I did read it. Really? I forgot that was the title of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then she sort of abandons him, right? Yeah. Because he's a, fifteen. Because he's growing up. Yeah. It really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot that that was the name of it. And she and she sort of kills his dad. Yeah, she does kill his dad. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I gotta say that book. It was so. I actually read it on a plane to Florida. I was going to visit my grandmother, um, and it has. I, I was skeptical about the title at first because it, you know the book ends in Tampa, or maybe the entire thing is taking place there. But it's not like it's a big. That's a big part of the the emotional landscape of the book. But now, not only is the city forever associated with <laughs> pedophilia in my mind. The word, the very word, is now disgusting to me. I know. Well, I feel like, I think, you know, she's from Tampa, and she went to high school with that pedophile teacher, Deborah Lefebvre. Oh, really? And so this book is somewhat based on that story, and so I think there's a way where it's kind of like um, an ode (laughs) (laughs) to her upbringing or something like that. I'm looking at uh, looking at uh, looking it up right now. Uh, that person. Oh, there she is. In two thousand five, she pleaded she, guilty to lewd or lascivious battery. She's not Mary Kay Letourneau. No, but she's very similar. <laughs> Both have French last names. Yes. That's what we take away from this. Yes. And I, I'm sure I mentioned this. In, on this podcast before, but I'm so fond of this memory of you coming to visit Ithaca when Owen was a baby <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you and Rian making Mary Kay Letourneau puns in rapid succession. Yeah. Uh, one about one of her, her nicknaming Owen Mary Kay Letourneauver because he was, <laughs> he was yeah. rolling around on a blanket. And yeah. then during a game of risk, <laughs> Ed said, it's my turn now. It's my Mary Kay Letourne now. 
I have heard that story before, but I yeah. really like it. I because I was actually <laughs> weirdly trying to remember it, and I couldn't remember what joke both Rian and Ed made. So yeah. I'm actually glad that you brought this up. It was a Mary Kay Letourneau joke. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I have to say, um, uh, Rian is connected to my only—not well, my only—my strongest memory of Derek, in which, sadly, I pitied Derek. It was that. Do you remember the whole Chuck Bartlebaugh? Uh, was that uh, the guy that she worked for who yeah. was weird? Yeah. She, Lived in his car and yeah, maybe had yeah. something to do with bears? Yeah, that's very good. Very, It's a good memory. There's this guy <laughs> in Missoula who ran something called the the like the Great Bear Foundation or something. And it, it billed itself as like a, you know, a bear uh, preservation organization, which it was. And he was a wildlife photographer. He'd been a race car driver in his youth. Um, and... He's a very amiable guy, and he could talk people into doing stuff. He talked General Norman Schwarzkopf into being the the spokesperson for the um, for oh, the organization. Wow. But it was a one man thing, and he would hire people from the temp agency. And little did my ex know, um, not pay them. <laughs> and um, and also he was illiterate, and he managed to conceal this from everyone for his entire multiple careers, and so that. It was only after a couple of weeks working there where he was he would find ways to not reveal it. He would ask her to read stuff back to him that he had dictated, you know. Um and it finally dawned on her that he couldn't read. Uh so he was kind of brilliant in a way. But um <laughs> the, the big moment was when he invited the two of us out to dinner um at this do you remember the bridge, a little bistro on near the bridge on Higgins yeah, Street? Duh. Yeah. So so we went there. And we had a really nice dinner and a great conversation. And then at the end, uh, he, he turned to Rian and said, can I borrow your credit card? <laughs> and then he bought us dinner with her credit card and then didn't pay her for the job. So she quit. And then we were at, we were at an MFA picnic. <laughs> and Derek <laughs> Derek was telling everyone, I got the greatest job. I'm going to be working at the Great Bear Foundation. And we're like, oh, no. (laughs) I can't remember if she told him or not, but he might have just found out on his own. Um, I... I like just love stories about con artists. Or maybe not con artist isn't quite the right word, but people who have really just manipulated and talked their way through life just like casual habitual grifters yeah right well they're like i don't know how what else well because there's a guy in memphis who the thing is like i feel like i'm i guess probably it's from being on the internet for so long that i think everything is like hashtag fake and i'm incredibly skeptical about everything and um but like there's a guy in memphis who's like a very good spanish guitar player and he seems to play anywhere that you are like, it's like okay, he's playing this and even like we were at a bar me and my friends and then he came and he was like hey guys thanks for showing up for my gig and we were like you are always everywhere that we are. <laughs> your fans but anyway, so you're like thanks thanks for showing up for our date <laughs> yeah exactly it's like i we did not but so but my friend karina mcglynn the great poet ah. she lives here now but she uh, was like, yeah, her and her boyfriend Brent were like, yeah, like he actually lives in Los Angeles, but 
mo- and I was like, no, he clearly lives in Memphis. He's here every day. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, no, he's, he's only here. Like sometimes he actually lives in LA and he actually owns like a frozen yogurt business. What? He's, he's actually finishing up his PhD right now. <laughs> Cause they, and they were like, really like, isn't that cool? He's does so much. And I was like, no, those were lies. Like he obviously is just some random Memphis townie who just plays the guitar everywhere. But, um, but they were like, wow, that is, his story is so amazing. Like his frozen yogurt business that he's trying to get off the ground. Like, no, <laughs> it's so random as to be, really plausible like it's a really it's a really it's a story that's not so over the top and boastful that you would doubt it it's just like sure this guy's trying to open a frozen yogurt franchise right well because karina the other thing that happened to her is she had she got her hair cut by some girl here in memphis and she told her that her boyfriend was like a professional basketball player on in the denver nuggets i think Uh uh-huh and I was like, no, probably not. <laughs> but I don't know how, like, I don't think so, because she just is a hairstylist who lives in Memphis. But um, but I don't know why people are always telling her these, like, crazy whoppers. <laughs> Maybe because she just seems, like, into yeah. it. She just is like, cool. <laughs> She's such a good poet. I don't know her She's very well. She's one of the best. But I loved her... her uh, I have to go back to 1992 and kill a girl. 1994, 19, but yeah, yeah, one prequel. of the best. This was the prequel. Uh, the prequel yeah, right. is I have to go back to 1992. Um, <laughs> back okay, to the future. Um, yeah, one of the best. Her books are amazing. Hot House, her new book, is so, so good as well. Um, maybe I'll read one of her poems. Maybe I'll... Well, maybe at the end of the episode. Um, <laughs> she is awesome. Uh, she loves you, Ed. Oh, she, nice. she always, whenever I talk about you, she's like, I love Ed Skoog. And then she's like, why are you always bragging that you're friends with Ed Skoog? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm not bragging. He just comes up naturally. By the way, when I was reading the uh, LA section of your book, and it's, by the way, you, you mentioned on uh, online that you were a little afraid that the title of the book, which I don't think we've said it yet, is Dead Girls. Would right. make people think that that's what the entire book's about when it's about a bunch of stuff. It's um, not. A, it's not a manual. Right. <laughs> no, well, people do. People are like, "Well, is did you talk about? Did you talk about this serial killer in your book?" And I'm like, "No, it's not an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not a reference work. Um, it's not comprehensive." <laughs> but there's a whole dead, dead girls A through M. Yeah. <laughs> Every dead girl ever. <laughs> um. There's a, a great se- sort of middle section of, of essays about Los Angeles, about writers who write about Los Angeles, about you living in Los Angeles and the various people you knew and lived with and so on. Um, and, uh, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. Damn it. Um, oh, is it, is it about why um, there's all this stuff about Los Angeles, but it never never mentions uh, whose suggestion it oh, was yeah, that, that was it. there? <laughs> I was like, as soon as I started reading it, I was like, oh shit, this is the time, this is the point where she blames Ed for everything. But, oh yeah. But she never did it. I never no, did. No, I'm blame free. I'm blameless. It's true. 
Blame I mostly Facebook. just say like, oh yeah, I moved there because you know I don't know why, because um, <laughs> Ed told me to. <laughs> it's all Here, I want... the prequel, the prequel, Live Girls. Right, live nude girls. Um, yeah, that that could be the next book. Mm-hmm. Probably not. I also enjoyed reading about your folks. Um, oh, and c- yeah. can, can we talk about can we talk about remote hoarding? By the way, the SCA, oh yeah. yeah, but the the yeah the, the SCA about your dad is uh, really tremendous. It's great. They're Everybody is saying that's their favorite one. I huh. love that. Well, it's a great. You make him a great character. I mean, which I, I assume that he is, but many people are, but they don't necessarily get portrayed as they are. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I agree completely with that. Do you, did you publish that elsewhere before? Because I don't no. think I've seen that material. Nope, it's just in the in the book. Yeah, I, I think it's that great. one and accomplices were the last two that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're both they're both good. I think accomplices is great too. Um, but yeah, uh, let's talk more about Bob Bolin. Oh, Bob! <laughs> he told me he sent me well. He sends me emails every day, constantly, and even one at one point he sent me an email to my work email, and I was like, "How did you get this number?" Like, can we? Like, he was clearly googling me, like clicking around the Memphis website. Um, so he, but he told me that he was not portrayed in the book as very manly. He did not come across manly enough. And that I should have talked more about his firefighting and hitchhiking experiences. Musk, his Musk. Yeah. yeah, and he's and he's. I think he's really being enjoying being my muse. Where like he has been wanting me to record him talking more, telling his stories, write more things about him. He's loving it. So. Fantastic. Yeah, there's a great there's a great moment where you sort of swerve away um to talking about books and TV for a while and then suddenly you say um you suddenly ask like in a kind of non sequitur that reminds you of where the essay started but sh- but the question is something like is the question is is my father autistic? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, cuz that was supposed to be the point kind of but we I'm, don't know. <laughs> I actually have to <laughs> say, um, and I want to get back to your dad um, and him t- and sending you stuff to hoard. But uh, yes, remote hoarding. But I'm kind of, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of surprised at how much of the book is memoir, and also how indistinguishable in a way the the cultural criticism is from the memoir. I feel like that it's not just about it's not just cri- it's not just criticism as memoir. It's more about like living art imitating life and the and life imitating art and living through books and music and or books and television and movies um it all feels of a piece in a way that surprised and delighted me thank you yeah i definitely uh, i think it's more memoir than i anticipated as well and a lot of that had to do with sort of pushing push pushes for my editor but also me just kind of realizing that some of these essays where they stood as criticism, they weren't very groundbreaking. But if I actually talked about my initial, like my true motivation and interest in those works, then they were much more interesting. Well, you know, every, every critic I like, I don't, I, I might like what they're saying, but I mostly like seeing them say it. And that's how I feel about this book. Oh, 
Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, The I definitely feel like it's like um, this is something I try to get my if I try to get my students to write criticism. What I try to point out is that you know our especially nowadays, but our relationship with art and media and the ways we interact with it is real life. You know, I mean, that is, and Mm -hmm. especially for me, I mean, my whole life, um, so much of my experience has been just reading and watching and listening to shit. You know, it hasn't been doing things (laughs) like just been sitting in a room, paying attention to something someone else did. So it's kind of dishonest to act like that's not memoir. That's not experience. Yeah. Where life experience right. is just, you know, action. Yeah, I spent the I spent the last three days. Um, it snowed here, and uh, I just finished my work week, and I spent three solid days doing nothing but reading your book and playing a video game. And the, <laughs> and the book was actually was actually kind of giving me license to feel okay about about spending my time that way. So thank you. Good. Yeah. Very good. I mean, yeah, I feel like that's I like. With my students, because teaching nonfiction is so hard. I don't know. Uh, I like it a lot, especially because I never studied nonfiction. I've never taken a nonfiction class in my damn life. So I don't know what other teachers do, which kind of is freeing because um, mm-hmm. I can just do whatever I want. And But teaching poetry is much more fun. You know, you can just be like, let's be weird and wacky and crazy. And teaching nonfiction, it has to be like, let's consider this seriously. Let's, <laughs> let's explore a little deeper. But I feel like, for me, like, I want to be like, well, the answer is to have been... Really lonely when you were ages zero to 21 and (laughs) convinced yourself that knowing a lot about pop culture would make other people like you. And (laughs) that's how you can be a nonfiction writer. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds sounds about right. Sounds about right. So remote hoarding is a thing, you say? Oh, yeah. Don't you think – I mean, hoarding is – it seems like it's a private activity. Um, people are reported to feel a, a combination of pride and shame as hoarders, right? Mm-hmm. They're proud of all the stuff that they have. And of course, ashamed of all the stuff that they have. Right. Uh, this is probably also true of people who aren't hoarders, people who just have things. <laughs> no uh, pr- pride and shame. I yeah, know, I know nothing shame. of those feelings. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's a generous it's a generous act to try to uh, um, to share your your hoarding with others, especially the, the farther away they are, the more expensive it is to send a stack of newspapers um, thousands of miles. Um, but I think it, it helps the hoarder rest easy um, in the fantasy that when you get the stuff, it's not going right into the trash. We have a lot of cups and saucers that are chipped and. Um, uh, toaster oven, <laughs> I think, of 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 the old days, um, that were given to us with um, with great ceremony. Um, that I feel uh, some sort of curse on them. I can't get rid of them myself. I, mean, I could, but I think this is that the hoarding is is perhaps the germ. 
Well, it's, I think that people feel as though they are an art collector who's donating their Rembrandt to the Met. You know, they're like little Peggy Guggenheims. I am sharing (laughs) my treasures. (laughs) I'm not a crazy person. I'm Peggy Guggenheim. Right. Here's some Monet's for you. Don't have room for all my beautiful treasures. So I shall share them with the world. I'm very generous. And instead of, you know, throwing them in the trash. But my dad, the thing is that my mom has been on sort of a. Well, my mom is, since I was born, or Charlie was born, uh, has been, you know, endeavoring to clean our house of all the junk that is in it. That's been decades. Uh, 33 years. (laughs) So, um, so, but one of the big things in the past couple years, because obviously only my dad and her live at home, is that she's trying to get my dad to get rid of his all of his cookbooks because he has too many, <laughs> and he's obsessed with them. And he, but the thing that he'll do that's infuriating to her is he will photocopy pages from books <laughs> to make new cookbooks. Oh yeah, <laughs> binders full and keep the other cookbooks. So, and all the cookbooks have, you know, like whatever post-it notes in them and whatever, but still he has the binders of cookbooks. So it's like, this is not a system that was working for her. So he has gotten rid of many or most of the cookbooks and done a good job, wow. but he which, loves, which goes first, the binder or the cookbook, um, which is the more prized possession. I don't really know. I'm sure the, I don't know because he likes to digitize stuff. He's into that kind of shit because he's a librarian. So maybe he maybe he's scanned some of them, but he sent me. He loves like old fucked up cookbooks that nobody would ever cook anything out. And like uh, who doesn't? Like, does he? I'm sure he has the Bull Cook and Traditional Recipes series. Oh, I don't know, but he sent me recently these Benson and Hedges. Uh, <laughs> Benson and Hedges presents Recipes from Great American Inns Benson and Hedges presents Entertaining with Style Benson and Hedges presents 100 of the World's Greatest Recipes And then I have another one, 100 more of the world's greatest recipes. But this one's by James Beard. So maybe maybe it's good. They're not lavishly – are they lavishly illustrated with pictures of people smoking while eating? Um, (laughs) uh, No, they mostly just have pictures of food. But the ones that – because he mostly sends me – these weird old cookbooks that clearly he's like, these are amazing treasures. They cannot be thrown away. So I need to keep them for a later, I need Alice to keep them for a later date when I will secretly retrieve them. (laughs) And, um, but the ones he sent me years ago that I think are at my ex-boyfriend's house, um, or more likely at a Goodwill somewhere in Los Angeles, uh, (laughs) is, um, were the two they were amazing. I actually have huge regret that I don't have them, but they were cooking the cooking with Coors cookbook, which was oh, all man. some all recipes made with Coors banquet beer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh elegant meals with inexpensive meats. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and to top it off, that one was actually published by Sh- the Chevron Corporation. <laughs> 
Always looking to economize. Right. The, uh, people at Chevron. Uh, so that is the, for the most part, what he has been remotely hoarding with me. Although I still, I mean, I get weird little packages from him with weird stuff in them all the time. Clearly because my mom has told him to give stuff to the Goodwill and he's like, I have a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, do you think there's some uh, secret language or, or code or voodoo in what he chooses to send you? Well, um, I don't know because the thing is like my boyfriend, Dan, he's who both of, you know, he's very, Dan is. How, very, how did you guys meet? Oh, because of Ed. <laughs> <laughs> we're never gonna we're ne- we're never gonna let you forget that Little that this Ed. podcast is responsible for your. Oh yeah, uh, we we love it. We don't we don't try to hide it. Uh, but he always Dan was talking recently about how he went up to me and and said, "Oh, I lo- hey, I heard you on the podcast. Uh, I love your you know writing about food you found in the street." I was like, "That wasn't me." But- <laughs> This is fine. And Dan was like, it worked. <laughs> uh, it's very just, sweet that he's like associated all all good things on the podcast to you. Right. He's like, oh, I'm pretty sure that was the same person. <laughs> Sarah Galvin. That's yeah, Sarah fine. Galvin. I, well, I said like, oh, I wish that was me, but yeah. it wasn't. Um, but Dan and my dad have a fun, funny relationship because they kind of have a similarity where they both are sort of weird and like like weird food and um, weird clothing items. But at the same time, like Dan is very accommodating of my dad and my dad is very pushy towards Dan. Like when we went out to this weird diner that my dad goes to. And my dad got liver and onions, and he kept making Dan eat his liver. He was like, <laughs> Dan, eat more of the liver, please. And Dan was like, okay. And so, um, and then, and anytime Dan compliments my dad on something that he's wearing or that he has, dad will buy that thing for Dan. Aww. Like, so my dad was wearing a pair of giant woolen uh, German army pants. <laughs> That he wears like once a year when it's like below freezing, you know, or you know, below zero in Nebraska. And he looks like, you know, like a little Arctic explorer. And Dan was like, oh, cool pants. And he was like, Do you think so? And immediately bought him a pair on eBay. <laughs> uh so but so that's all to say. I I wonder if some of these have to do with Dan, like maybe have some liver in them or some other kind of food. Because Dan also loves smoked salmon. This is Dan's favorite food. If my dad oh, sent him. My dad, dad sent him a shitload of smoked salmon from Omaha Steaks. I was like, hey. That stuff ain't cheap. It's not Omaha salmon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So he, because Dan is like a good boy, so he gets all yeah. the presents from my dad. Nice. And also my dad sent me an email that said, stop telling your mom that I only get presents for Dan and not for him. <laughs> 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 uh, right, yeah. that's, that's fantastic. Please say hi to Dan. Um <clears throat> Smoked salmon is fantastic, especially uh, with hash browns. Making some hash browns, mm-hmm. throw a little smoked salmon in there. Yeah. That's good. That sounds like very Seattle, yeah. Pacific Northwest style. Yeah. Uh, speaking of hoarding, uh, <laughs> Stephanie and I, and I have been watching, um, we've been sort of binging on um, American Pickers. 
All of which is on Hulu or something. Is that a bad attribute to banjo players? Yes. Explain what this is. It's a show where these two guys who own a, a, a series of antique shops... I think they're called like an- antique archaeology, and they they have very specific tastes. They're really into the 30s, 40s, and 50s. They're really into old like uh, like gas station signs. They're into old cars and motorcycles, but they have a really good eye and pretty good taste. So they um, find people out in the middle of nowhere. Um, some of them are dealers themselves, but most of them are just like pe- people who have a bunch of land, and they have covered every inch of that land with like trailers and like rail cars and abandoned mm-hmm. buses and those things colonial, st- stuff with junk. Colonial debris. Yeah, yes, wow. for sure. Um and uh they there was an episode that we saw the other day that was really moving to me and I actually want to write a story a short story sort of based on this. But they they get a call that they're these dudes, these two brothers We've got a garage full of old, um, you know, car parts and motorcycle parts. And there's also a whole old Ford, like a 36 Ford out there. So they they get to the place and they're like poking around and they find some interesting things. And then they're like, where's the car? And they said, oh, it's under there. And they point to a giant pile of boxes. It's The car is literally completely covered with Whoa. debris. But their dad, who owned it, and this car was... The f- the first time the older brother ever drove a car was driving this car into the garage, and it never came out. That was literally the <laughs> oh last time, and that was fifty years ago. So th- the the father had had the presence of mind to cover it with a tarp, and the and they they spend hours like pulling all the boxes off it, and they take the tarp off and they tow it out into the light for the first time, and these two. These two old rednecks just burst into tears. Oh like, my god! And it's flawlessly preserved. And they, at the end of the episode, they're like, "Well, what do we do now?" And they're like, "Well, we gotta. I guess we're gonna get it running." So they and they actually have a project, you know. Um, but their their hoarding had been like, they both the loss of their father was obviously uh-huh. very profound for them, and the uh, their hoarding was sort of like a continuation of their father's hoarding, right? It was like mm-hmm. a testament to his a testament to his life, you know it was the record of his life and the project of his life, but it wasn't doing them any good, so they sort of at the end the the assumption was they're kind of transferring that emotion into getting the car running again instead of just this accumulation of debris of emotional debris. I mean, yeah, the show hoarders is incredibly sad and upsetting. (laughs) Like, yeah. And, and a lot of it is about codependence or like very, it's so often where they're like, yeah, I guess I don't know why I started hoarding, but I did sort of start doing it the day that my son died. So (laughs) it could have to do with that. Like, you're like, okay, this is like, you don't need to be Freud to understand, but okay. But speaking of American pickers, yes. To go on to a more, light topic sure because i've been shopping too much because <laughs> i'm lonely and my job is stressful <laughs> so okay. right. um but i was thinking about this like well one thing i think about is like when you're in a used bookstore the uh. books that you like 
being in a used bookstore is overwhelming or a bookstore of any kind, but a used bookstore especially. So you have these certain books that you're looking for, maybe. Like now I own all of Joy Williams' books and I can't be looking for them anymore, which is upsetting. But I still look for Muriel Spark books, even though I also own all of those. And I own like a giant set of them. But I'm <laughs> like, well, I still yeah. need extras. And I actually own Kindle versions of a lot of them as well. So, but I was thinking about what are the, like, okay, I want to know two things from both of you. What are the things at bookstores that you always look for? Like the, 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 or that you're currently looking for? And what are like other, like, because now I've started keeping a list of things that I want to buy and I have to write it down before I buy it, even though I haven't been following that rule at all. But I'm like trying to do that. And so I want to know like what are you also like going to buy soon? What's like a fun purchase? Oh my that god. You have made or that you're going to make. So I have a note on my, you know, a note on my phone and computer called objects of desire. And it's yeah, like, like that. it's every little thing that I want. And some of them are practical things and some of them are fanciful things. Some of them are things I'm never going to own. Um, you know, like a $250 hunting knife. Like I just, you know, I'm not <laughs> right. going to, there's no reason for me to have such a thing. Uh, but um, some of them are just like little, you know, when you like with books or with me also cameras and electronic musical instruments, uh, things that I'm obsessively interested in. And so know enough about so that when something is good, I can see it from 50 feet away. And uh, in bookstores right now, it is the first run of vintage contemporaries with mm, the, yes. with the mm-hmm. super ugly covers. And in fact, um, Taking Care is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, I really... And Breaking and Entering and State of Grace are yeah. all vintage contemporaries. Anything that in like, when the first couple of them came out, um, there is a checklist in the back, and this is something I really miss in print books, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a checklist where you can just put a check mark in front of the books you want and add them up and there's like a handy little total thing you can write in at the bottom and then you se- you rip it out and you send yeah. it to the publisher with a check and they will send you those books. Um anything from that original checklist I I kind of want to have and I'm making a John, you should pile. come to Memphis, buddy. We've got two <laughs> bookstores. There's one Xanadu is well, this would be your dream except that people well, this <laughs> bookstore it is like a little hidey hole. You see it and you're like what the fuck is xanadu and you go inside it's just a bungalow and it's packed to the brim with books but it also is a mute has musical instruments it has like beautiful dan electro tons of guitars tons of guitars and um and records because everywhere in memphis has records of course but it has so many vintage contemporaries but it's all ones that i'm kind of like am i should i buy it like but it has like anita brookner a lot of ann Beatty books um but uh, and also ones by people you don't know. Jim, they're like Jim Harris. Tons of Jim Harrison books there. Yeah. Um, but and lots of strange amount of Montana writers in Xanadu. But you should you should come on down, John. We can hook you up. I would love to. Um, and you you acted like you were going to mention another store in Memphis as well. Oh yeah, well Burke's Books is a really famous bookstore in Cooper Young in Memphis that is a new used bookstore. But I found a signed copy of one of Ann Beatty's early uh story collections there for like four dollars or something like that but they have tons of vintage contemporaries too great i've got the website open now i would love to come down and and check that out what do you you look for in a bookstore 
Uh, look, um, I'll always like go to the poetry and try to find. Uh, I always hope to find the answer there to find some book by some poet I haven't heard of mm-hmm. uh, who has been um, uh, kept from me, who is fantastic. Um, and I can always sort of fool myself for a few minutes that I have found that book. Um, but mostly, I, you know, upon closer inspection, I realize that it's. I haven't heard of the poet because they're terrible and uh-huh. the book is no good. But there's a little moment, you know, luckily that, that moment usually happens before I purchase it. Um, but I, there's always a little glimmer of promise whenever I get to the used section and uh, uh, used poetry section. I also like uh, science fiction and fantasy covers. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. and sometimes we'll buy one just for... Because you think that, and especially since that era is is largely over, um, that you've seen the most lavish and garish and hilarious and stupid and wonderfully executed cover, uh-huh. but then you find another one, uh-huh. exponentially weirder. <laughs> yeah, you know, I like uh, I like those. Memphis has a a sci fi fantasy bookstore as well, really? where you could find many of such covers. Yes, What's it called. I can't read two rivers, two rivers, I think is what it's called. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's very near Burks. Um, Memphis has, is a funny t- book town because it isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> all, the, all the town's books are in stores instead of in people's homes. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's just so much a music town. Mm. And then the book stuff is a little bit of an afterthought, but it I, I is... think of L.A. that way as being like a, a, oh, yeah. a like a crypto great literary town. It in is part, in part because it's so overshadowed by the by the entertainment industry. Absolutely, its bookstores are so. L.A.'s bookstores are like, do you want a tote bag? It's like, no, I want a book. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you also can. Also, my like, favorite bookstores there. are in L.A. Though I love Small World Books. They're on Ven- on the Venice Boardwalk. Well, the best, my favorite is Skylight. Skylight is Skylight's great. great. Romans. Mr. Romans. Skylight books, is that Romans. what it is? It's Mr. Skylight books. They renamed it yep. Mr. Skylight because they wanted to make sure that people knew that it had a penis. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And there's that new old-looking bookstore downtown. Is it the, the last bookstore? The last bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. That's- All the bookstores are so small. They don't have any, like, they don't have a Strand. They don't have a Powell's. They're all kind of boutique-y. The they used to have acres huge, of isn't? books. They used yeah, to have acres, acres of books, of books right. down at Long Beach. It's been gone for about 10 years. But that was yeah. that was the uh, – I mean, Powell's is great. Um, King's Books in Detroit oh, is amazing. I love King's Books. But the Acres of Books was perhaps the greatest bookstore I ever, I ever stepped into. And uh, it closed almost immediately thereafter. King Books, I used to – when we were in Missoula, Ed, it was – pre-internet um pre-amazon and uh when i found out that a book existed and which is mm-hmm. a th- which is like a thing that i've kind of forgotten about like that that the kind of dream you used to have or i used to have about like finding a book i didn't know existed from a writer i liked or finding a record that i didn't know existed from a band i liked kind of mm-hmm. doesn't happen as much anymore because it, the information about what you like is so readily available but if I if I found out a thing existed, I would send King Books a postcard, 
<laughs> usually I'd save up some desires and I would send them a postcard and, and say, do you have any of these? And then via the U.S. mail, they would write back and say, we have these, send us a check for this much. And then I would send the check and they'd send the books back to me. Yeah. Well, that's what's still, I mean, that's the fun thing. Well, like where me and Dan go record shopping in Memphis because every place has records and you just have absolutely no idea what they're going to have. So that's it still has some of that feel like yeah. we bought like a George Benson record about a Laura Nero record. It's just like, you know, whatever you can find and they're probably all scratched up, but I don't know. Speaking of Dan yesterday, you you posted a video of him singing about Fiona, oh, yeah. the baby hippo in a very that's high right. voice. And yes. literally my entire day yesterday that was stuck in my head. I have it stuck in my head all the time, the Fiona song. Um, I will yeah. be big. I will be big. Oh, yeah. It goes like this. Hold up. Let me, I can sing it, but I can't sing it in his hamster voice, but I can. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, please I can do. do a, uh, it goes, um, and I will be strong and I will be big. 17 times larger than a pig. <laughs> and I will be brave. And I will be true. The greatest baby hippo at the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> but that was back when he wrote that when she was, you know, still in the double digits of weight. I was like, she's going to die. We're all going to be so sad. But she weighs 6,000 pounds now. It's crazy. Yeah. Fiona has really come so far. <laughs> 17 times larger than a pig. She's 17 times larger than a pig now. <laughs> um, I love a yeah, happy Dan, ending. Dan's yeah. little songs are, because he wrote, that's not the only one he wrote about Fiona, but it's <laughs> the one I captured on film. My, uh, um, my, my, my writer friends and bandmates, uh, Adam and Elizabeth, are really good, really good at, like, relationship ditties. You know, like yes. little songs that they invent in the kitchen. Um, and I actually captured one on video once um, that's just an advertisement for a, an imaginary, uh, like, charitable organization. It's uh -huh. like, it's the... It's the Boone for T. Coleman Association Foundation. <laughs> it's the Boone for T. Coleman Association Foundation. It's an association and also a foundation. It's the Boone for T. Coleman. And they would come to band practice and just sort of perform these things that they'd made up at home. And I feel like of all, and these people are great musicians, but I almost remember those things more, more passionately than their legit, their you know legit creative output. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm, Dan and I are always singing songs to like hype each other up or like get the day going or affirm one another. Like I have a song that I sing to him that goes, it's okay to be gay. It's okay to be straight. If you want to be bad, you should try to be great. If you want to be sad, you can cry all night long. Then get up and try. Just sing this song. Oh. It's an inspirational song. Yeah, that's legit good. <laughs> 
but we, I mean, we have so many little weird, because he would be like, sing, sing for me, sing us all, <laughs> like the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he would be, I was like, no. <laughs> well, guys, I want to read you this poem by, by Karina. McGlynn. Yes, please. She'll, she'll be so pleased um, because she loves Ed so much. Is... Um, and I'm sure she likes you too, John. No, that's, um, you don't have to say that. That's, that's fine. But this she... is from her new book, Hot House, that came out last year. Um, that's super good. Okay. Um, it's called Rich Girl Camp Revenge Fantasy. <laughs> we all know where you're from and where you're going in your dingy wind shorts and knockoff keds. The rival tribe's hillside fired up in the night. Stop stealing our hair ties. Just shake the spirit <laughs> stick if you give a shit. After taps, not even a flashlight, ass deep in the creek, you give the Houston girls a body scrub and check down there for leeches. We're just making s'mores, but you call it beach picnic and put a pox on our ponies. You're the one who's allergic to yarn. You're the one who gets bloody noses and can't clean the cabin. You're the kickball spaz, the Kmart kid who wants too badly to climb in our war canoe. It's after Reveille, and we can't find our shower shoes. You're ruining this for everybody. Snake in the drain, you say. Dead girl's ghost in the cypress. <laughs> you start the seance and can't come to chapel. You say you want to get our occult loins going like diving boards and string us up in the fume noose of our own puff paints. <laughs> <laughs> Fume noose? Yeah, fume noose of our own puppies. Now the counselors can't find you. We know you're smoking with grounds crew at the edge of the range where the dark belongs to the three-legged maniacal Nasher. Where care package trash and dirty words spill out on the grass with splintered arrows. You're not even good at nature. You sneer <laughs> You're not even good at nature with your sneer and your bull cut. The PA pages you and pages you. You pretend not to hear. You're up in the branches clutching a pitcher of barbecue sauce. Below, our parents snake through the oaks in a line of seersucker and clean white suburbans. That's it. Nice. Fantastic. Yeah, it's real good. Anyway, everyone should read that book. Yeah. I'm gonna read. Uh, I'm gonna read a poem too. I put yeah. this. Put this. You you uh, noticed this on Twitter last night. There, there's this article going around, and I'll link. To, I'll try and link to it in the um, in the notes for the show. Uh, that this researcher into neural networks had noticed that when a neural network sees any kind of mountainous landscape, it says that there's sheep in it, even when there are not sheep. Oh, and she wanted to find out what's the deal with neural networks and sheep, and so uh-huh. she asked all these people on Twitter, "Would you send me some pictures of sheep in weird contexts so we can see what the neural networks make of it?" And it turns out it has a lot more to do with where the animal is than what the animal is. For instance, there, someone sent a picture of these goats that perch in trees. Yeah, um, uh-huh. <laughs> and the neural network recognized them as birds <laughs> because they were in a tree <laughs> like 
one goat was like four storks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it re- reminded me of this Robert Francis poem, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sheep. Mm-hmm. From where I stand, the sheep stand still as stones against the stony hill. The stones are gray, and so are they. And both are weather-worn and round, leading the eye back to the ground. Two mingled flocks, the sheep, the rocks. And still no sheep stirs from its place or lifts its Babylonian face. Yeah, that's so good. Isn't it? The Babylonian face. Yeah, it's such a, a good ending. It's a beautiful, surprising ending, for sure. And also, it's almost like it's from the, it's from the neural network's point of view. Right. <laughs> They're like, what if the sheep look like rocks? Yeah. <laughs> Ed, you got a you got a poem you want to read before we uh, sign off? No, I got nothing. What? Really? I got. I don't have anything at hand. I don't have anything at hand. Oh, all right. Oh, but Oscar Oscar came in and brought me a joke book. He wanted me to share. Oh well, oh. please. A well, joke from the please. Arrow Book of Arrow Book of Jokes and Riddles. <laughs> what vegetable has the most money? And this is this is a good joke because it's. It's factually incorrect. What vegetable <laughs> has the most money in it? Um, it says mint. What? Mint. What? Mint? <laughs> mint is not a vegetable. <laughs> it's an herb. Yeah, it's an herb. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was trying. Place. I was really trying. I was like, bank. Of lettuce, like I could not think of what it was. <laughs> Bank of lettuce. Yeah. Bank of lettuce yeah. is a good. Lettuce use. or cabbage? <laughs> lettuce and cabbage. Yeah. You know the green. What do ghosts eat for breakfast? Uh, Cheerios. <laughs> it's better than the arrow. According to the Arrow Book of Jokes and Riddles, it's ghost toasties and evaporated milk. That's a shitty riddle. Ooh, it's boy. a terrible joke. I was uh, I. This book has been for two years, um, serving to keep the refrigerator level. It's been under the refrigerator, <laughs> so that it didn't wobble when you opened the door. And that was perhaps too good a use for this book. That should be your Amazon customer comment. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very. It I would wouldn't be... balance my refrigerator with this book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a... reviews of books as door stoppers is, um, or refrigerator leveling tools is pretty much on the level of most Amazon commentary. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Here's something that you. If you if you found one of these in Memphis, that would be great because I don't think they have many of them in in the Northwest. Okay. A belt balancer. Ooh, what's that? Yeah. Chris Chris often had a belt balancer. <laughs> I don't even know what it is yet, but of course he did. <laughs> and uh, and had elaborate expo- explanations for it. And then I, I ran into a couple of people who had belt balancing jokes. Um, in in Louisiana, uh, belt it's just a piece of wood. It's just a whittled piece of wood that um, serves no real purpose except, I guess, maybe you could balance a belt on it by putting the belt oh. on either side evenly. Other than that, it's just a piece of wood. Just a what? No good, useless piece of wood. 
where where but they're would often you have de- it? They're often decorated and yeah. carved. Oh, is this to so, store to store the belt? It's like a whittling, like an idle an idle whittling craft project. I mean, it does sound like the kind of thing you could find in Memphis for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Keep your eye open for belt balancers. Okay. I'm Googling it, and it doesn't. I see. I see. It's like a belt holder, kind of. Mm, It might be able to be a. Yeah, that that's too useful. It's like a. There's seems, yeah, there's a there's a, a video game that seems to use the term for something else. So there's lots of screenshots of that, but I'm seeing one now. It's like a little it's a chunky hook. Is Maybe. it? No. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep looking. Maybe there's another name that Maybe. we can find yeah. on the internet. It's like a the, goofy a goofy old stupid southern thing. Like well, there's other things. I mean, there's a lot of good i mean there's not it's the thrift stores in boston are obviously amazing because a bunch of horrible shithead college students who are super rich just like give all their stuff to it and so you can find like lots of really nice stuff but the thrift stores in memphis are fun because you can find lots of really weird stuff like we bought like a carved horn Mm -hmm. uh, or like we bought a triangle like a musical instrument nice Ooh, nice nice you know, um, so, or like, uh, you know, a hat that says, like, hunting club or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, Memphis, it's full of relics. That's kind of its thing. Like Elvis, you know, it's just, we're living in the past over here. Sure. I It'll just, catch up. I sent you all a, a photo of a belt balancer. I finally... Yeah, I, I don't one. think that's a belt balancer, though, right, Ed? Or is it? Um, I, I need to look. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a belt balancer. Okay, that's but it doesn't have to be. About. It doesn't have to be hooked. So I see. You don't. It's not a thing. You don't have like a row of them in your closet where you store your belts. It's just. No, that's a that's a thing <laughs> that exists. It, this, is a, this is literally yeah. of no practical value. No. It's just a thing to make. A thing to make. You balance For your fun. belt on it, oh, and I think I think you can. It, uh, um, there, there's a little bit of a trick of, so like you could put it on your fingertip. Yeah, yep. that's what yeah. they're showing. Yeah, they're showing in <laughs> these a, images. That's they're a belt dem- demonstrating the yeah. fun you can have with a belt yeah. balancer. Yeah, that's a that's a good. That's an excellent <laughs> belt balancer. I'm. Uh, did you like snip tool that picture? Do you have the rest of the gentleman? Uh, no, that I just found just, it on a, a forum. There's a, the, I'll send a link to the whole. I'll I'll put the, I'll put it in the notes. Um, there's a whole like forum. Because there, there's about, an, there's an implied world there. I mean, he's married. Uh, and um, his his kind of I was going to comment on his sort of goth styling of his belt. <laughs> the belt itself is. <laughs> it reminds belt. me of the house, sort of the grommeted uh, belt. Yeah, that um, that the boys would wear when I was in middle school, uh, that were kind of you know roughly rave, rave or goth style or goth rave, um, sort of yeah. you know hot topic. So kind these, of thing. Uh, this forum thread, it's a forum called uh, Lumberjocks, which is a, a woodworking <laughs> yeah. woodworking forum. 
Yes. And so they're calling a balance widget. This guy says, Gary W. says, when I was about five or six, my dad made me a widget. You could put a belt in the slot and balance the very tip on the edge of, let's say, the kitchen table, and it would float there. You could touch the top, and it would bob up and down, but would not fall. And then a bunch of people have posted their designs for belt balance. <laughs> for a not belt a bunch, balancer. a few. Uh, no. Balance widget. Yeah. Balance widget. I love that. It's just like a dumb little thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Gosh, speaking of speaking of remote hoarding, that could be <laughs> that could be a new oh, I, I, one, one last one last question about remote hoarding. I know that we're running over. Um, do you think that that Bob is playing a long game? Uh, in which he supports you and encourages you, your writing. In fact, he's been nurturing you towards this since the crib. Right. So that eventually you sell your papers to like the the Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin or something like that. His alma and, mater. Well, so he so he maybe been playing this game, set this con since before you were born, maybe. <laughs> um, and then after you you know make your have your memorandum of understanding with. Uh, with the the library, he can just sort of funnel his hoarding into the permanent collection in the the Alice and Bob Boland papers. Um, it, interesting that you mentioned that because <laughs> he well he like I well he's getting his he's retired as a librarian, but he's getting his his certificate in digital humanities right now, and because he likes like archives and digitizing stuff and whatever. So, but he one of the numerous emails that he sent me a few weeks ago was this one, and the title is "Digital Editing and Archives." Okay, so he's really he's really into being very terse in it or very um to straightforward in his emails. My course is very interesting. I assume it's his course about digital editing and archives. Um, I recommend that you be your own archivist, an ideal subject for future scholars. Save manuscripts, collected texts, corrected texts, and correspondence about texts. Date all texts. When you think the file is complete, write up a summary and create an inventory showing what's in it. Roll on, love, BB. <laughs> Roll on was his sign off. <laughs> That's uh, fantastic. So, so I think you may be onto something, Ed. Yeah. Okay. I think I've I've uh, I've, I've uncovered uh, a plot. He's definitely trying to work himself into my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so far, so far, he's uh, a feature of every book you've published. So that's yeah. absolutely that's right. True. I mean, so wrote you know a eight thousand word essay about him. So <laughs> when is the there book uh, available to the the um, the civilian? June twenty sixth, twenty eighteen. That's too long for people to wait. Can they do anything if they're eager to get a hold of? They can <laughs> uh, pre-order they can it. Perhaps. Pre-order it for sure. Um, are you? What I like to do. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna go out of my way and pre-order a book, I usually get like five copies. <laughs> this is true because it means my, that I'm, I'm excited enough for the book that I'm I know I'm gonna want to share it. With my people. mom pre-ordered eleven copies, and my uncle Tim pre-ordered ten. So, well, they're, they're family. They are really going for it. That's fantastic. Are they? Is the publisher sending you on the road? Not really. Um. Yeah, not really, but I am sort of, uh, you know, 
manipulating my way into having a small book tour, uh, but it's not real set yet. I'm having a book release in New York City on around pub date. That is not that's kind of TBD. And then I'm going to be in Boston that same week. And then I think I probably am going to read in Washington, D.C. in July with our friend Andrew Martin, whose book is coming out in July that's as right. well. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Um, so uh, at Politics and Prose. Um, and then I'm really hoping to get up to the to the northwest in L.A. maybe sometime this summer, maybe in the fall. But I really want to go. I just want to go to Portland and Seattle in the summer anyway. So may as well. Well, you will. Make sure you, you come to Portland and we'll get that book into people's hands and have a big party. Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, we'll, I'll, um, we can talk about it later, but I, nope. uh, no, this is the one, <laughs> one time. <laughs> um, so what, what days are good for you? Ed? Um, <laughs> get you, let's open your calendar. Uh, let's see. It's like a, it's July, like a July, July, uh, July is really busy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, at meetings where everyone's like, can we all just get at our planners and just make a new time for having a meeting? And I'm like, could we not? <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I'm hoping to do that this summer. But in LA too, I feel like I have to read there at some point. Sure. Well, keep us posted. Yeah, dude. I will. We'll, we'll amplify the signal. Like the, uh, the LA um, award for writing about LA. God, yeah. I don't know if there is one, <laughs> but there certainly should I be. Win, I want to win an award of any kind, ever, like any kind of award. I <laughs> sure. haven't won an award since ninth grade. I won the French award, but I had to share it with my friend Betsy. And honestly, she probably should have just won it. Uh, did you have a? Uh, this is my last question. I can keep asking questions, but did you have a a French class name? Did you have a French name in your life? No, class? I was just Alice. Mm-hmm. It's a French name already. Yeah. Um, like that. We didn't really do that. We kind of did, but then we didn't really stick with it. Yeah. I'll, I, we should, maybe we'll have another conversation someday, but about the, the, the chosen names of Chinese and Korean kids at Idlewild <laughs> is, oh, sure. um, yeah. well, is a fun one. We could put yeah. a pin in it. Well, yeah, we could talk about, um, about that phenomenon. Sure. Yes. I, I look forward She's to not that. Exclusive to Idlewild, but no, um, but at Idlewild it has a special flavor because the kids like everything at boarding school. The kids are influencing one another and parenting one another, and they change their names. And yeah, anyway, a lot of esters. Yeah, well, we had um so many Cocos <laughs> and Serena. Cocos, Serena was a very common Coco. Yeah, yeah. But but there was a little girl named Sister. She named herself Sister. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but she changed it. I think eventually she just went by her Chinese name because she realized that sister was not a name. Yeah. And she already had a name. So yeah. Right. She was like, may as well. Let's <laughs> yeah. go back. Maybe the name that I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Uh, okay. Well, all right. You should come to Idlewild this summer. I want to. Which Actually, that might be July. a what, – what, what's the dates? It's the, the Idlewild – uh, Writers' Week is the week of Fourth of July, so it's like the second through the sixth, I think. Mm, I'm thinking about it because I still will have um, I'll have Memphis money for travel still left over. Mm-hmm. Y'all are making me jealous. You can come too, Sorry, John. John. <laughs> well, and you're going to see each other this coming week. I have have fun, but not not too much without me, please. Okay. 
What are you going to do instead of what are you going to do while we're all in, in Florida, John? What am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to do a little teaching. Uh, I got Ooh, some yep. classes to teach. Uh, nice. I got assigned. I got a couple of book reviews to write. One of them I won't say. The other one uh, is Dennis's Dennis Johnson's Swan Song book. Oh yeah. So I've, oh, well, who are you reviewing it for? Uh, the Nation. Andrew Martin is reviewing it for the London Review of Books. Oh, great, great. Yeah, I mean, took, I, he took I, your I, LRB I, job. Yeah, I totally. I shouldn't know. say that. I should say <laughs> anonymous has been assigned it yeah. for the London Review of Books. Um, but yeah, exactly the same with me because I've never written for the Nation before, and they might. They now might that's not like uh, the, the white nationalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, magazine. That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. Exactly. Uh, I'm I'm going to tell them that he was uh, he was a pure a uh, pure white man. And, yes. Uh, no. Um. And and I still have plenty of work at the LRB. So I'm I'm I room for uh, plenty. I loved your Kurt Vonnegut review. Oh, thank you. I didn't even see it. Yeah, it's in the new issue. Um, I reviewed the collected stories and oh hell um, yeah, they are not very good. And, oh. and even the ones, <laughs> even the beloved ones, are kind of now horrifying to read. But it's really interesting to read. They were mostly written for the, um, you know, the, uh, like uh, the Saturday Evening Post and Colliers yeah. and a bunch of what are sort of uh, condescendingly called women's magazines like Cosmopolitan and Ladies Home Journal. Um, but they were for a popular audience and you could feel him kind of oversimplifying and talking down. But you could make a living off of short stories in those days. You'd make like three to $5,000 and this is in the 1950s, which – went a long way then so for a story well, there were only three writers then <laughs> it's true it's true i that's I, how i feel where i'm like could people stop releasing nonfiction books the same year as me like <laughs> you actually mention in the book you you actually uh tag the 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 glut of not glut you said it was a crowded a crowded field of uh of uh essayists at the moment but <laughs> Uh, your your yes. <laughs> book is going to stand out. It's going to be a hit. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope so. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll see. I think that the marketing, like the package itself, is doing a lot to sell yeah. it. All right, guys. I'm going to go eat some eggs. Yes, please do. We've been talking too long. Oh, no. This is an excellent amount of time to talk. Uh, but why don't, well, we have, why don't we do this again around publication time? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, yeah. Thank you guys so much. This was really fun. <laughs> Au revoir. All right, have a, have a good day and travel safe, you guys. Yes, okay. goodbye, my friends. Bye. Bye-bye. Are you hungry for lunch? Well, then let's have lunch. Do you want some lunch? Well, then we'll give you some lunch. Do you have a hankering for lunch? Well, then come to lunch. Because it's time for lunch. Box with Ed and John. That's right, it's time for love.